In the Old Testament, there was a, a prophet of God named Samuel. <clears throat> That's where we get the books, First and Second Samuel. And Samuel was a great prophet of God. In First Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. In verse 3 says, But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So on the one hand, you've got a dad that was a, a devout follower of God and someone we look up to and respect, but his sons were not. They were cheaters and liars and thieves. How does that work out? Well, I learned a long time ago that just because, for example, you're a good mechanic doesn't mean you're good at running a business. Just because you're a good teacher doesn't mean you'd make a good principal. We have someone in our uh, in Gunner that was an excellent teacher, and so she got promoted to principal, and she doesn't like it and is having a miserable time. That's just the way life is. And just because you're a good man or you're a good Christian or a good woman doesn't mean that you're a good parent. There are skills that we as parents have to learn. And so that's what I would like to talk about this morning. As you know, all my kids are grown now. Melissa was born in 1990, so she's, what, 25 this year? So all my kids are grown, and I'm at that stage of life where when your kids make mistakes, you look back and you think, is that my fault? Was I not a good parent? Melissa was over at the house last night, and she said, uh, <clears throat> something came up about me speaking today, and I said, I'm speaking on parenting, and I told her, I said, and I'm going to use all six of you kids as examples <laughs> of what not to do, and as you can see, Melissa's not here today, <clears throat> and you think, you think, well, I'm not a parent, or my parenting days are over, or whatever, well, that doesn't really matter, uh, a friend we've got staying with us last night also heard us speaking on parenting, he said, well, I don't guess I'll go. He says, because I don't have any kids, and if I hear that lesson, I'll just be judgmental against my own parents. <clears throat> There's still something we can get out, whether if you're a kid, or if you're not a parent yet, or if you're your grandparent, and your kids are already grown. When, when Paul was in the middle of his travels, one time some of his disciples went on, and he waited for them in Athens... And it says, Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within, within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And so a few days later, Paul goes up to the Areopagus and he starts to preach to these Greeks that don't know God. In verse 22 of Acts chapter 17, it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For, I was, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. And Paul tells these people, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Paul was about to tell these people for the first time about Jehovah God. And the first thing as parents that we need to do, I want to talk about four things we need to teach our children. The first thing that we need to teach our children is, is about God. And you think, well, of course. I mean, already did that. Believe it or not, there are parents that have not taught their children about God. Mike has told me about knocking on doors, and he came across a family one time, and a grown man had never heard 
of Noah and the ark. And there are people like that out there that have never heard of God. I mean, they've heard the word God, but they don't know God like we know Him. There are parents like Samuel that while they serve God, fail to teach their kids about God. So what are you going to teach your kids about God? What, I mean, not just that there is. The first thing that you're going to teach them about God is like John says in his first letter, God is love. When Jesus told us, uh, showed us how to preach, I believe it's in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts out what we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say our God, Jehovah, I am. He says our Father. And what that means is <clears throat> the first view that our children have of the God in heaven is their Father on earth. Are we fathers being a good representative of the God we want our children to follow? You know, and Paul, uh, Paul in Colossians warned fathers not to provoke their children to wrath lest they be discouraged. If we're a, a hard, demanding, unloving, unkind, unforgiving father, what image are our children going to have of God in heaven? The first way we teach them about God when they're one and two years old is the example that we set and the fact that we're following God. And so through our example and the way we treat our children and then what we talk to them about and what we teach them, we need to teach them that God is love. And we'll get a little bit more into that later on. <clears throat> the second thing that we need to teach our children, and probably most parents do this, even that parents that don't go to church, is that there is such a thing as right and wrong. There's a school of thought today. Remember when in, uh, in Genesis when Cain killed his brother Abel? And God came and he found Cain and he says, Where's your brother? And Cain, in an effort to excuse himself of any responsibility, said, Am I my brother's keeper? He was trying to get out of any responsibility he had to his fellow man. And there's a train of thought today when we get to talking to somebody about sin or what's right or what's wrong, good and evil. They say, well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. Just like Cain, they're trying to excuse themselves from any responsibility for their actions. They want to do what they want to do, no matter what anyone else says. And so there's lots of arguments out there. That may be true for you, but it's not for me. But we need to teach our children... That there is such a thing is right and wrong. In Proverbs it says the way of the transgressor is hard. When you break the law, whether it's man-made laws or the laws of nature like reaping and sowing, we bring a lot of hardship into our lives. And so from a very early age we need to teach our children between right and wrong. If you stop and think about it, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. Everything in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the New, New Testament. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And both the New Testament and the Old Testament center around one thing. What's that one thing? The death of Christ. And why did Christ die? Because there is such a thing as right and wrong. 
And we need to teach our kids that. You know, as a parent, it's hard to discipline our children. We don't want to see them cry. We don't want to break their hearts. We don't want to hurt them. And so sometimes we're, we resist the need to spank them. But you know, pain is a natural teacher. When you do something stupid, like slam the car door on your finger, or slam a, a house door on your finger, or you're cutting, you cut your hand with a knife, what is one of the first things you think? You're, oh, 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 I'm not going to do that again. Pain is a natural teacher. Isn't that what we tell? Hey, be careful. Don't do it that way. You'll, you'll what? You'll hurt yourself. Well, I don't want to get hurt. I'm not going to do it that way. Pain is a natural teacher. Dogs can learn from pain. Grown-ups can learn from pain. And six-month-old babies can learn from pain. They may not understand why they got a swat or a spanking, but they know that it didn't feel good and they don't want it to happen again. And very quickly they learn to associate it with whatever they just did. We need to discipline our children. We need to teach them that there is such a thing as right and wrong. And not only will they get punished now, but in the end, God will punish them. Which means leads me to my next point. Uh, there is a judgment. That's one of the advantages that Christian parents have over non-Christian parents. Is that uh, if if I'm not a Christian and I teach my kids, say, well, why, Dad? I say, because I said so. Well, as soon as Dad's not around anymore... They're going to do what they want to. And that's what we read about in the papers. Kids going to college and doing all sorts of crazy things. But a Christian parent can teach their children that there's a God that sees you all the time and there's a God that in the last day is going to reward you according to your actions. Going back to Acts chapter 17 again when Paul was in Athens. Paul kind of sums up his his preaching to them. In verse 31 he says, Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. In John chapter 5, in verse 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those that have done good... To the resurrection of life. And those that have done evil. To the resurrection of damnation. We want to teach our children about God. We want to teach them about right and wrong. But we also want to teach them about judgment. Romans 14 and verse 11. uh, Paul quotes. Where it says. Every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. Do we want our children doing that when they're on the right hand of Jesus or when they're on the left hand of Jesus and condemned? No one wants to see their children go to hell. So we need to warn them of these things now. And of course, if we teach them about right and wrong and judgment, then we're also going to teach them about priorities in life. Of course, the first thing is we need to have the proper priorities in our life. If we're always after the dollar or or pleasure then our kids are probably going to grow up to do the same things in spite of what we tell them. Actions speak louder than words. We need to teach our kids about priorities. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else will be taken care of. 
In Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about life and the good points of life and the bad points of life. And the moral of the story in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. After all the wisdom that Solomon has given in the book of Ecclesiastes, what does it all boil down to? Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So we need to teach our kids about God. We need to teach about obedience, right and wrong, and judgment. And we need to teach them about priorities. Because once they get out on their own, it's probably too late to do much teaching. Everything's pretty much set in stone. And so we only get a few years to teach these things. The second thing we need to teach our kids is stewardship. Now while it's in the Bible quite a bit, we really don't hear much preaching about it or or think much about it. What stewardship is, it's not exactly like being an employee, although an employee is a, a type of a steward. A steward is someone who is in charge of someone else's property. Your next door neighbor goes away for the weekend and says, would you feed my dog and make sure he's got plenty of water while I'm gone? And you say, sure. Well, for that weekend, you're responsible for your neighbor's dog. It's not your dog. You can't do anything you want with the dog, but you're still responsible for it. And when your neighbor comes back, he's going to hold you responsible for the condition of your dog. And so you take very good care of the dog. Well, we here are stewards Because we don't really own anything. The earth and everything that's in it belongs to God. We belong to God. And so anything that we have, we're stewards over. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable. In verse 1, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. That's kind of like getting called into the boss's office and he says, What am I hearing about you? And we're shaking, oh, crap. You know, if we didn't do anything wrong, we can explain to the boss. Oh, I understand. I didn't, I, I didn't understand. But we don't want to get called in the boss's office when we're guilty, do we? And that's what happened to this steward. He was responsible for some stuff and he was wasting it. What if, when we turned 16, the government issued us a brand spanking new car? Now, we didn't get to choose what kind of car it is. It might be a pickup. It might be a Volkswagen. It might be a Mustang. It might be a sedan. But whatever it was had zero miles on it. Brand spanking new. This is the only car we were ever going to get. And when this car broke down and wouldn't run anymore, then we couldn't get another car and we couldn't hitch a ride with anybody. When our car was done, it was done. That was the end of our riding around. You know, we only get one body. And when it's done, it's over. We can't get another body. We can't borrow someone else's body. When it's done... It's done. We need to be good stewards of our body. We need to teach our children this. We don't need to teach some bad examples when it comes to taking care of our bodies. Another thing, Jesus asked the question in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, What is a man profited if he gains the whole world 
and loses his own soul. As much as I would like to, I cannot change you. I can see your faults. I can talk to you about them. I can pray for you. I can threaten you. But I cannot change you. And you can't change me. You can kick me out of the church if you want. But if I'm set on doing something, I'm going to do it. And you cannot keep me from doing it. The only person that we can change is ourselves. We are stewards of our soul. And on judgment day, we're going to have to give account like this steward did in the parable. We need to take good care of our souls. You know, one of the things I talked about when we teach our children about God, that includes priorities. And this is going to affect our soul, the priorities we teach our children. Another thing that we're stewards over, kind of like just in, just like in the parable, is money and possessions. Now, do we seek after money and possessions? Do we want to be rich? Paul warned Timothy that people that seek to be rich pierce themselves through with a dart. They just don't see how much misery it's going to bring them when, when money is number one in their life. We need to be good stewards. There is verse after verse after verse after verse in the book of Proverbs that talks about money. I don't know if it's true, but I've heard that the Bible talks more about money than it does about heaven. We need to teach our children to be good stewards of money. Another thing that we're responsible for, although we don't own, is opportunities. I think it's Zig Ziglar said it's better to lose money than time because once you've lost time, it's gone forever. You can get more money but the time you lose is gone forever. Jesus said, say not there are three months and then comes the harvest. He says, lift up your eyes now. I tell you, the fields are already white to harvest. I'm not sure what crop Jesus was talking about. I think someone has said it's wheat. But I know in West Texas when the cotton is ready to harvest, you look out and those fields are just white as snow. It's time to harvest. Jesus says that time is now. Even though it's February, The time to harvest is now. There are opportunities all around us that we're letting slip through our hands like sand. And when they're gone, they're gone. One of my, I think she was a junior high teacher, said that opportunity is like this big, scary, long-haired, hairy monster coming at you. And it scares you to death. But once opportunity's passed, it's this cute little hairless, slippery, harmless creature. When it's coming at you, it scares you, but it's got long hair and you can reach up and grab it if you wanted to, but it scares you and you let the opportunity pass and then in hindsight, it's so slippery like a greased pig. The opportunity's gone. You can't grab onto it. We're stewards of the opportunities that surround us. And as I mentioned also in that example, we're stewards of time. We've only got so much time. We talked about our bodies. When it gives out, that's it. It's better to lose money than time. Jesus says, work for the night is coming when no man can work. What was he talking about? What is the night that he was talking about? Well, it's death. When we're laying there on our deathbed, all those opportunities that we had, all that time we had, it's at an end and we can't go back. We don't get a second chance. 
Jesus taught, or Paul in Ephesians 5 and 16 talked about redeeming the time. Remember a few weeks ago we talked, uh, in one of the applications, we talked about the fact that when you redeem a coupon, a coupon is just a piece of paper, and it says you're entitled to something. If you've won something or, or 10% off or whatever, and you trade this piece of paper for something of greater value. And that's what we do with our time. We trade it for something of greater value. The time we spend with our husband or wife or our children or fellow Christians or doing good for someone or studying God's Word. The Bible talks about laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We need to be good stewards of our body, our soul, our money, the opportunities, and the time. But we need to teach our children that too. It's a bad thing to look back and see that we didn't teach our children these things and see them making a mess of their lives. Another thing that we need to teach our children is self-control. Some of you lived through these days. Some of you might have heard of these days and some of you might not have heard of these days. But back in the 60s, all the soldiers had got back from World War II. They settled down. They they bought homes. They... they, uh, They married, and they had children, and life was good. The war was over. The United States entered into an era of unprecedented wealth. And one of the things that the parents forgot to teach, well, a lot of these things, parents forgot to teach their children, and so there was a generation that grew up called hippies. And they came up with slogans, if it feels good, do it. Uh, do your own thing, and stuff like this. And so we also entered in not only into an era of unprecedented health, but uh, sexual promiscuity, uh, laxness and rules. And, and that's the way it is now. People are not taught self-control. The beer commercial used to say, uh, you only go around once in life, so you grab for all the gusto you can, which on one hand is true. I mean, like, we've only got so much time, you got to do everything the first time. But on the other hand, it's not about pleasing self. There are other things more important in this life, and that's where self-control comes in. Remember when Paul was talking to Felix, when Paul was a prisoner, and they brought him out to talk to Felix? And Felix was the one that said, um, I believe, go your way. When I have a more convenient time, I will call for you. You know what Paul talked to him about? He talked to him about righteousness and judgment and self-control. You get a king that's got a lot of power and a lot of money, he can pretty much do what he wants to and get by with it. And Paul preached to this king about self-control. And if Paul's preaching to kings about self-control, don't you think we need to teach our children about self-control? We need to control our heart. Proverbs says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The thoughts we have, the, the things that come out of our mouth, Our lusts, our desires come from our heart. And so we need to teach our children. We ourselves need to take care of our own heart, but we need to teach our children to guard their heart. Not if it feels good doing. We need to teach our children to control their mouth. Uh, Abraham, I can't remember if I, it seems like I may have mentioned this. I read a book on Abraham Lincoln. And he was going to. He was engaged to Mary Todd, uh, Mary Todd, whatever her maiden name was. And he wanted to call off the um, 
the engagement. And so he wrote a long letter out and he showed it to his friend. And his friend took it and threw it in the fireplace. He says, if you got something to say, say it. But once you write it down, it's there for all posterity to see. Well, you know, the same thing is, is true of our mouth. The things that we say come back to haunt us. Once it's been said, you can't take it back. And it may get recorded. You may have witnesses. And someone may turn around something you said in a way that you didn't even mean it and use it against you. But once it's said, it's said. Proverbs says, In the multitude of words, there wants not sin, or sin is not lacking. In other words, the more you talk, the more trouble you're going to get into. And that's true of Facebook and Twitter and stuff like this. Once it's out there for everyone to see, it's out there. A lot of celebrities get in trouble mouthing off about politicians or other celebrities. They're in the headlines every day. We don't want our kids to be in the headlines. That's why James said, let every man be swift to hear, but slow to speak. We need to teach our kids from an early age to control their mouth. And not just, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, thank you, please, don't yell at your brother. But talking about other people, griping, complaining, complaining about the government, complaining about the police. We need self-control of our mouth. We need self-control over our temper. Paul wrote the Ephesians, he said, be angry and sin not. I think I mentioned a while back when everyone talks about what would Jesus do, and someone said that uh, whenever someone asks a question, what would Jesus do, always remember that making a whip and turning over tables is within the realm of possibility. Anger is not a bad thing. Sometimes, you know, uh, you get the third or fourth overdraft notice for the month, and they've taken $80 out of your account, um, you get fired from a job for being irresponsible. Sometimes you finally, you say, that's it, I've had it. And you do something to change your situation for the better. You've got a boss that nags you and he won't give you raise and he underpays you and he never appreciates what you do, but you don't want to go for another job. And finally when you say, that's the last straw, I'm out of here. And you turn in your two weeks notice and you go and get a better job that pays more where they appreciate you and you move up and you get a job as manager or vice president or something. Sometimes anger motivates us to do something we should have already done. But sometimes anger gets us in a lot of trouble. In Proverbs it says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. When I think of the mighty, I think of King David and someone with their armor and their sword and their shield. Someone that can control their temper is even better than a mighty man. And I'll tell you another area that we need to teach our kids self-control. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, Paul says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. To sanctify something means to set it aside and make it special. This is the will of God for your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. What's a vessel? A vessel is a container. What do you put in a container? Where you put 
water or oil or milk or iced tea? What is our vessel? This the body. What's in our body? Our soul. Paul says that each of you should know how to possess your own body in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Uh, in verse 7, Paul, Paul says, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. We need to teach our kids uh, sexual control. Someone said one time, said, How many times do I have to keep paying for the same sin? Sometimes that answer is a long, long, long time. The best way to stay out of trouble is to not get in trouble. Another thing that we need to teach kids about is alcohol. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker. Even if you don't get a DWI, even if you don't get a divorce... Abuse of alcohol is going to bring you a lot of troubles. One of the firemen I worked with talked about he was at a party and a guy was coming down the stairs and he was drunk and he tripped and smashed his face on the steps. That probably cost that guy a lot of dollars in dental work and and medical bills to get his face fixed. All because of alcohol. And of course, we know worse stories than that. I remember one time in Richardson on a Sunday morning... About 9 o'clock, we got called. Well, it actually was not in our district. There were five fire districts there in Richardson. I was in District 5, and it was over in District 4, and they got called to a wreck at a certain intersection. And so they sent an engine and an ambulance, and they got there. And we, I was listening to the radio. We were all in the office, and we were visiting, listening to the radio. Well, Engine 4 and Ambulance 34 got there, and they called for a helicopter, and they called for another ambulance. A couple minutes later, they call for the battalion chief who goes to the big stuff, and they call for another ambulance. Then they call for another helicopter, and they call for another ambulance. And a mom died, and three other people, four or five people almost died. We flew two to the hospital down to Parkland. You know why? Two guys had been out partying and were out driving. They'd been out partying all night, and they were drunk and high on cocaine. They ran a red light, ran into a minivan of a family going to church, killed the mother instantly and almost killed two of the kids. And the dad wasn't injured very bad. I guess he was on the other side of the minivan. Wine is a mocker. Paul warned the Ephesians, be not drunk with wine. You know, one of the problems I had as a parent, and I'm, I'm not bragging about myself here, but when I was a kid... I don't know how to say this. I was pretty smart. <laughs> and I would look at somebody that would do something and get in trouble, and I would think, well, that's dumb. I don't want to do that. I mean, therefore, I never was tempted to smoke. I was never tempted to do drugs. I could look at my friends, and I'd say, that's dumb. I don't want to do that. I was never tempted to drink, so therefore I never got DWIs or anything like that. And I could look at my friends doing stupid things and bringing all sorts of misery in their life, and I would say, that's dumb. I don't want to do that. But not everyone's that way. I'm different from other people in that way. Most of us need to be talked to. We need to be warned. 
There's a verse in the Old Testament, I didn't think to look it up. It says we should talk to our children about the, the laws of God. We should talk to them when they go to bed. We should talk to them when they get up. We should talk to them when we sit down to eat. We should talk to our kids all the time about these things. But dumb me, I just didn't talk to my kids about a lot of this stuff, thinking that they would just say, that's dumb, I don't want to do that. But most people aren't like that. We need to talk to our kids all the time about these things. When one of their friends at school gets himself into trouble, we need to talk to him about that. What could he have done to have avoided this? Do you think this was a good idea? Do you want this to happen to you? How would you handle this situation if you were in this situation? We see something on television. We see something in the news. What do you think about this? What would you have done? What should he have done? How could he have stayed out of trouble? How long do you think he's going to jail for this? We need to talk to our kids all the time about their mouth, their temper, sexual lust, alcohol, drugs, whatever. We need to teach them self-control. The last thing I want to talk about that we need to teach our kids is love. You think, well, duh. I mean, I love my kids and they love me. Well, there's more to it than that. As I've gotten older, I can see one family that's got a lot of love and is still close and forgives each other. And I can see other families that are torn apart because they stay mad at each other and they won't forgive each other and they're always angry and bitter. And this family over here is like the fairy tale living happily ever after. And this family over here is bringing so much misery in their lives and raising their kids to be the same. What do you teach your kids about love? 1 John chapter 4, in verse 20. John asks a very thought-provoking question. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, uh, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? I see Christians, and I'm not talking about anyone here, although there may be someone that falls in this category, that are at church every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, they go to meetings, they've got Bibles at home, and yet they treat other people with so much hatred. I've seen Christians lie about other Christians just to hurt them, to get back at them because they're mad at them because they won't forgive them. And yet they go to church and claim to love and worship God. John says this is impossible. If you don't love someone sitting next to you, if you don't love your next door neighbor, if you can't love the people that have hurt you, there is not a way in the universe that you can love God. Love starts by loving our fellow man. We need to teach our children to do this. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at that real quick. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's talking about the old law. But, Jesus says, I'm telling you something different. I say to you, love your enemies also. Bless them who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. So we need to love not only the people that we love, but we need to love our enemies too. And that is hard. You don't realize how hard it is until you've witnessed someone lying 
about you and lying to you. And then later that day when you say your prayers, you've got to somehow or another swallow your pride. And this person that wants to do everything within his powers to hurt you, you've got to pray for that person. That is just nearly an impossibility. But we can do it. That's what we've got to teach our kids. We've got to teach our kids a complete love. Because Jesus goes on here to say, he says that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You know, God's got some special blessings that he gives to you and me. But at the same time, there's a lot of people who aren't in church this morning. There's a lot of people out there doing a lot of bad things, and yet the sun still rises on them. They still get rain. They still get the blessings of living in this nation. That's the way God's love is. Now, one day there's going to be a judgment day, but right now he's giving even the wicked people blessings. And he calls us to do the same thing, to love our enemies. Therefore, you should be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, I can't be perfect. That's ridiculous. Well, what does perfect mean? You're going to get married or have a 60th wedding anniversary or whatever, and you go to the baker and you describe the cake that you want for them. And then you go back to pick up the cake, but you're a little bit early. And he comes out and he says, the chef comes out and he says, I'm just about to finish. Come back and look at it. And you go back and you, oh, that is beautiful. It's perfect. It's, it's more than I ever imagined. It's perfect. And he goes, no, no, it's not perfect. And he takes a little bag of frosting with a little tip on it. And he puts a little red here and a little red here. And he goes around and puts the last little decorations on it. And he steps back and says, now it's perfect. Well, is it really flawless? No, it's not flawless. It's not perfect. But now it's complete. He's given it the final touches. There's nothing more to add to it. It's complete, so therefore it's perfect. Our love needs to be complete. We need to love not only the people that are close to us, but we need to love our enemies. And think how much less problems there would be in the world if people had that kind of love for each other. So we need to teach our kids a complete or perfect love. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Would you believe... The good manners are in the Bible. First Peter 3 and verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. We need to teach our kids good manners. And then we need to teach them for forgiveness. In Jeremiah, God was or Jeremiah was predicting that the old law would be done away with and God would establish a new agreement with people. He was talking about the New Testament. And in this, Paul's, or God says, For I will forgive their iniquities. But he goes on to say, And their sins I will remember no more. Now, you may have heard me say this, you may have heard Mike say this, but it needs to be said over and over and over again. There's three parts to forgiveness. You see, I've heard Christians say, I even had one I talked about forgiveness one time, and a person came up after church that said, I can never forgive my parents for what they did. I go, whoa, <laughs> I just preached that about that parable where it says, if you 
if you don't forgive your enemies, then God won't forgive you. And someone comes up and says, I'll never forgive someone. I'm going, oh, waiting for lightning to strike. There's three parts to forgiveness. If I can remember. One is, you never bring it up to that person again. And that's what most of us do. We say, oh, I forgive them, but I won't forget. Well, the second part is, you don't bring it up to anybody else. If you're telling me something bad someone did to you and you forgive them, but you're talking to me about it, you haven't forgotten them because you're bringing it up again. So you don't bring it up to them. You don't bring it up to other people. And you don't bring it up to yourself. When a person says, oh, I forgive them, but I'll never forget. Well, you're just rehashing that in your mind over and you haven't forgiven them. It's just, they're just as, that wound is just as fresh now as it was 10 years ago when they hurt you. Don't bring it up to them. Don't bring it up to anybody else. And don't bring it up to yourself. We need to teach our children forgiveness, which means we need to be forgiving parents. We can't be bringing stuff up that they did last year, two years ago, and three years ago, and calling them names and saying, you're stupid. We need to believe the best about our children. So there's four things. We need to teach our children. Each of these four things covers a lot of an area. We need to teach them about love, stewardship, self-control. Or we need to teach them about God and then love. Back before... This is the end now, so you can get your songbooks out or whatever. Back before radar, back before jet airplanes, back before surveillance balloons like they had in World War II and bombers and jets... It was easy to defend a city because all you had to do was build a wall. And then someone just needed to be up there watching to make sure no armies were coming. And everything was cool. No one could drop bombs on you. But they would always appoint watchmen to watch out at nighttime and the daytime to make sure that no armies were coming. And so God uses this example in Ezekiel 33. Verse 1, Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, in other words, war, and the people of land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpets and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. And so this lesson this morning has been like a trumpet. Warning of of coming dangers. It's going to face you and your children or your grandchildren. Things that we need to warn about or be concerned about. And so I hope you'll take this lesson this morning and don't look back five or ten years ago. Say, I wish someone had told me that. Because this morning you've got the warning and of course you know where to find out all the, the rest of the details and look into the subject more. If there's anything we can do for anyone, won't you come always sing a song of invitation?